5: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. If you didn't think the lockdown was over yesterday, you need look no further than the front pages of this morning's newspapers. Pictures from the beaches of Bournemouth, Bracklesham Bay, Hive, Brighton, Barrie and Blackpool. Today, the temperatures are likely to hit 34 in the south-east of England and the roads will be ever more packed out with people enjoying the sunshine. Yesterday in London, the streets were filled with drinkers and the parks were rammed with picnickers. There is simply no lockdown anymore and anyone who tells you there is is very clearly deluded. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying it's a good thing. But for heaven's sake, why don't we just admit that it's all over and everything is now going to start coming back to normal. Pubs are open in all but name. It can only be a matter of time before the first restaurant tables start appearing on the pavements. I'm not sure it's going to have to be until July the 4th that we wait for that to happen. Meanwhile, everyone else seems to be booking holidays as well in an effort to beat the inevitable price rises that will come when the government announces air bridges and deals with countries like Italy, Spain and Greece bookings are up 50% in the last two weeks ahead of the announcement coming on Monday have you been making plans and if you have what are they Where are you going? And are we creating a kind of two-tier society, as I've mentioned once before, where some people are able to do all of these things because they have been making money, where other people can't do these things because they haven't been making any money? We need to hear from you. You are, of course, the eyes and ears of the independent republic of Mike Graham. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later, we'll be joined by David Woody, political editor of The Sun on Sunday. He'll bring us up to speed on what's going on with Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick and just how serious Dominic Cummings is with his threat to reform the civil service. Service. He's been saying it for a long time, but it might finally now be coming to some kind of fruition. Plus, we'll be finding out exactly what happened in Brixton last night, where 15 police officers were injured and police cars were smashed up after they tried to break up a street party uh, in that South London housing estate uh, just off the back uh, of the sort of Brixton high road. Now, You may think that this is yet another example of lawless Britain. I think you'd have to be right. I've seen pictures and videos of the police being chased basically out of the area. Because they didn't go in hard enough. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. Royal author Charles Ray joins us as well with the latest from Hollywood Central, where Harry and Meghan are now on course to make one million pounds per speech, apparently, uh, because of course they've now signed up uh, with the same talent agency uh, as Barack and Michelle Obama. And we've got some more homeschooling for you as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio, mid morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio. Now, whatever you were doing yesterday and however you managed to stay cool, uh, you're going to need to do the same thing again today. because It's actually going to be even hotter today than it was yesterday. There's actually a warning in place uh, that you should not go out in the midday sun, literally. Uh, mad dogs and Englishmen and all that because the sun and the UV rays are going to be so strong um, that you could, in fact... Uh, do yourself an injury so whatever you do do not go outside at midday make sure that you are inside listening to talk radio because we'll still be on uh you'll be able to hear the dulcet tones of all sorts of people coming out through your radio or through your television indeed because you might be watching us right now live on youtube you might be listening on alexa you might be listening in your car but try your best not to be outside in the sunshine because it isn't going to be very nice at all Um, unless you're on a beach of course in which case you should probably be lying under a parasol to protect yourself now that's enough information about what to do in this country. What about If you want to go abroad, because we're seeing stories this morning um, that the number of bookings uh, for foreign holidays have gone up double what they were just two weeks ago. We're going to talk now to Lisa Minock, a travel editor of The Sun, to find out where people are going. Lisa, very good morning to you. Morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, This has come as a bit of a surprise, hasn't it? I thought people were kind of um, unsure, really, of whether the quarantines were going to be in place, whether or not certain countries might be uh, wanting to test you on arrival. Who, who are these people making all these uh, holiday bookings?
6: Well, I think what you've got at the moment is you've got people who already had holidays booked. Most people would have maybe booked their, you know, package holiday um, earlier on in the year. You remember the sort of turn of year campaigns were always going to be, you know, huge. Um, so people might have already had a holiday booked and are now looking forward to the fact it's now going to go ahead. Um, but then you've also got people who I think just really feel the need to get away. And, and they've been reassured by the fact that they can see... There is definitely movement towards these air bridges rather than the strict quarantine measures, well, or not so strict, it's not really exactly enforceable at the moment, um, but the quarantine measures that we have in place at the moment.
5: Yes, well that's the thing isn't it, it's all been a bit sort of woolly to be honest, I mean I've not been quite sure, you know we've been sort of humming and hawing about whether we would go somewhere this year and we would more or less given up on the possibility of going anywhere foreign, partly because it sounds as though flying is going to be a bit of a chore and also secondly, if you are going to be kind of um, possibly quarantined wherever you go because you're coming from the UK, um, that kind of ruins the whole trip really doesn't
6: it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what you will find definitely is that, you know, the countries where they really rely on our tourists coming along and, you know, spending money in their countries, they are very quickly going to welcome us back. And by that, I'm talking about the likes of Portugal and Spain. They're desperate to get the Brits back. Um, and they will welcome us back. Um, we've already had the fact confirmed that Spain has dropped their quarantine and um, Portugal never had one for Brits. Um, they really do want us back. there, spending money um, on their shores.
5: Yeah. So what do we find when we get there, Lisa? Because that's also not very clear whether swimming pools are open, whether I mean, certainly we, we believe that uh, there won't be any more of those kind of uh, uh, all inclusive type hotels where you've got buffets everywhere. Um, will swimming pools be open uh, in every place you go?
6: well i think most of the time you find they will be and it's it's strange that we've decided in the uk that we're not at the point where we can open swimming pools or water parks but and they very definitely are open when you go to places like spain italy and france um and i think it just shows that they are just slightly ahead of us in that sense there is going to be social distancing that seems to be the one thing that everyone's saying it's going to be about hotels will be open but they won't be at the same capacity they were before and as you say The buffet breakfast, the buffet in general, I think is going to be something that isn't going to appear in any hotel um, across Europe. It's now going to be, you know, being served specific food directly to your table or having food cooked for you and brought to your rooms.
5: Yes. And that's a very different kind of holiday experience, really. Do you think people are prepared for that? Do you think they realise that actually uh, the holiday that they are uh, hoping to have this year is going to be very different from the one they had last year?
6: I think we've all had to come to accept it in terms of, you know, we're we're slowly adjusting to this new normal in terms of, you know, masks wearing masks um, and and really sort of changing the way that we look at social distancing. Um, I spoke to TUI this week. They're aiming to start flights on the 15th of July back to some of their favourite destinations. And they've already said that they're only going to open up hotels where they know the experience isn't going to be so drastically transformed by the new protocols they've Mm. had to put in place. So they're opening up the big hotels, the ones where there's plenty of space and people have a lot of independent personal space of their own. Um, So they really are trying to make sure that it it is exactly what it should be, a holiday Mm. um, and not a series of you know, restrictions uh, and sort of protocols in place that make it much more sort of sanitary, hygienic thing, but perhaps not what you want on a relaxing holiday.
5: No, quite. And I assume as well that this is more the type of holiday where you basically, you you sort of fly and and frump yourself down on a a sun lounger rather than, what some people like to do, which is to go on a bit of an exploring kind of trip, like, you know, go to Greece and, and maybe, you know, tour around parts of different islands and get on boats and all of that, because, again, we're not entirely sure which, pit, which bits of that are open.
6: Yeah, I mean, and of course, you've got to bear in mind that at the moment, the government advice is against all but essential travel anywhere in the world. Mm. Um, what we are going to have to see happening before any of us go abroad um, without invalidating our insurance, and indeed for the actual travel companies to go out there, is we need to have that advice changed. So I can imagine that on Monday, when we've got this review of the um, quarantine measures in place, um, the air bridges or the idea of the air bridges will be discussed then but at the same time the foreign office will have to then change its advice um, against all but essential travel to those particular destinations and i think that's the point where we'll actually open up the floodgate because by then you then have you know travel insurance that works you've got tour operators that are able to legally go to those countries um, and that's going to be the other really sort of Important bit of information that we need from the government before any holidays can go ahead. Well, that's
5: right. And also, it's weird because I mean, I was on the A2 the other day and there's a sign on there that says only essential travel uh, and there's a massive traffic jam. You know, so <laughs> um, I think the government's sort of has always been slightly behind what people are doing yeah. and they, maybe that's a deliberate thing.
6: Yeah, and I think it's also a case of, you know, we've got to allow people to have, a you know, a bit of their own personal responsibility in this. You know, we're not saying everybody has to go on holiday this year, but those who want to go on holiday should be given the opportunity to.
5: Yes, quite. And as far as um, the sort of the staycation market is concerned, Lisa, what do you think is going to happen there? Because, again, um, for those of us who decide we want to stay in this country, it's again not quite clear yet what is going to be available.
6: Well, that's it. I mean, we have a limited amount of accommodation in the UK. Um, there are going to be people that choose not to take a summer holiday in England that would normally have done. Um, and so there, it's, it really remains to be seen. But we'll, what we have seen is record levels of bookings in um over the last few days. Um, and what we've also seen as well, I had a, a colleague of mine ring to tell me that he'd made a, depo- put a deposit down last year um, on a cottage in Cornwall. Um, all sorted. He was expecting to go in August and was rung up this week to be told, sorry, we can't accept your booking. We're going to give your deposit back. And I'm pretty sure the reason behind that is they know they can probably get double the amount of money for that same cottage now. Yes,
5: that is the problem, isn't it? There's going to be a bit of gazumpery going on, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very bad. And what about America? Because my, this is a, a, of personal interest to me. I've got a, an elderly mother who lives in Connecticut and uh, she's 96 and I normally go and see her every year. And I was hoping to go and see her, obviously, around about sort of March, April time this year, which is when I normally go. couldn't go. Um, yesterday, I see that uh, the New York governor has said there's now going to be a quarantine in New York, not only for international travellers, but for anyone coming to New York from outside of, of the state, as it were, and similarly in Connecticut as well.
6: Well, I mean, unfortunately, I'd love to be able to say that the news was good, but I don't think it is. Um, I don't think we're looking at having travelled to the US or South America, which, again, both have been really badly hit by the coronavirus mm. crisis, probably not until November. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the way the industry figures are looking at the moment, that it's really going to take that long right. um, before there will be... Either the demand um, or the ability to actually go to places like America. Right.
5: So, would you expect to see Lisa the, the the airline business kind of picking up a bit more this week and next week, and as we get into July, because we were told, I think, that uh, the EasyJet we're going to start doing more flights in June. Uh, Ryanair, I think, more flights in July. Um, is it going to be? Is it going to be easier? Do you think once we pass that sort of July the Fourth totem date?
6: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think there is going to be uh, more flights around. But you have to bear in mind that what they're doing really is where they might have had six flights a day to somewhere like Malaga, there will probably now only be one because mm. they're looking at what the demand is. And at the moment, there isn't a huge demand. Um, as we come out of this sort of lockdown phase and people start to think about holidays again, they will bring them up. But they're, all of them are really only looking at operating at about 30 percent of the capacity that they would have done. Last summer, yeah, and um, so between June and, and September, although there'll be plenty of different destinations that we can go to, the, the frequency of those flights is going to be slashed massively, um, and they're looking at about 30 percent of normal capacity. Uh, British Airways have said that they don't see there's going to be any kind of you know demand similar to. Pro, you know, pre-COVID until 2023
5: at the earliest. 2023, blimey. And so yeah. would we expect to have a different experience on the airport front as well then? Because uh, we've been speaking to the odd uh, people uh, travel uh, journalists who have been flying in various uh, guises just to sort of uh, to see what it's like. Um, mm. We're being told there's quite a lot of, uh, I mean at the moment the I mean, airport's obviously very very empty, but quite a lot of sort of pre-boarding stuff going on. Um, obviously once you're on the plane wearing a mask, having to put your hand up if you want to go to the toilet. Again, a very different sort of flying experience than most people are used to.
6: Well, yes, it is. I mean, I was on that first EasyJet flight from Gatwick to Glasgow a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it was a very different experience, but not that different. Um, the airport was deserted. I think it was Gatwick North Terminal. There were seven flights that day, right. um, which, you know, normally there would have been probably 700 flights. I mean, it really is that kind of difference. Um, but the only thing I really struggled with was wearing the mask for long periods of time, because you are having to wear it from the minute you go into the airport yes. to the minute you leave the airport. And then even then I was on the you know train from Gatwick and of course had to wear my mask then as well. Mm. Um, and When it's hot, it is really quite, you know, it's not easy to wear a mask. But apart from that, you know, it really wasn't that different an experience. Um, I was quite reassured by all of the measures that EasyJet said they were taking to make the plane as safe as possible. Um, I didn't really have any concerns. But then I'm a travel journalist. You know, I'm always going to be probably looking at it from a very positive direction. Yes. But I think it's going to be a case that for an airline like um, EasyJet or Ryanair, they made their money out of all the ancillaries, out of the stuff that they sold us. Um, So they are going to be trying to get that back in place as quickly as possible. Um, There's no food on flights at the moment, but they were saying... You know, within two weeks, they probably will start to have food back on flights, mm. and you probably are going to need it if you're going to Greece. It's still a four-hour flight. You're probably going to want to have at least a drink um, in that four hours. Well,
5: that's the thing, and also if you're flying with relatively small children, and mine are reasonably old yeah. now, huge hulking teenagers. But I mean, if you're flying with uh, with anyone sort of under ten, uh, that's going to be a bit of a challenge, isn't it?
6: Yes, I think it is. But I mean, listen, it, it, I don't think it's any different from the challenge before. Um, young children don't have to wear a mask. Um, so it's it, down to the parents to actually ensure that the older children are wearing masks. But the older children should begin to understand that. Um, and this is just something that we're going to have to get used to living with this idea of, you know, making sure that we're taking personal responsibility uh, for protecting ourselves and others. Mm,
5: absolutely right. Well, Lisa, thank you very much indeed. Very helpful information from Lisa Min up there, travel editor of The Sun. Uh, if you have books, I'd love to know where you've decided to go and what you actually know about what it's going to be like when you get there. Because I think part of the problem here uh, is that we're not sure precisely what a holiday in 2020, the summer of 2020, actually looks like. You know, we don't just don't know. Are you going to be able to go anywhere when you get to the airport at the other side of your uh, airline flight? What are you going to be able to do on the plane? If you're taking kids with you, can you bring your own food? I mean, there's a lot of questions. That's why in the end, um, we kind of took a decision last week, basically not to go anywhere. That may change, of course, but at the moment, I just don't fancy the whole rigmarole uh, of schlepping to an airport, having to get there an an hour earlier than the normal two hours or three hours that you've already done uh, before. So you're possibly getting to an airport something like four hours before the flight goes. You're not really able to do anything while you're there. Uh, You're not really comfortable because the airports just aren't very comfortable places anymore. You get on a plane where you have to wear a mask. You can't have a drink. You can't have anything to eat. Uh, you then get off the plane you have to put your hand up if you want to go to the toilet uh, somebody basically escorts you to the toilet you get off at the other end there's a massive queue at immigration because people have to be checked sometimes possibly temperature checked you then get on some kind of a, a transportation device which may or may not be a car or a taxi you have to probably put your mask on again you get to the hotel you find out the bar's shut there isn't any food there's no buffet the swimming pool's shut doesn't sound like much of a holiday to me sorry I'm not going. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Norman Brennan, uh, who is, of course, former police officer himself, now director of the Law and Order Foundation. Norman, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Terrible scenes in Brixton last night. I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the police do not have control of the streets anymore.
2: I'm afraid that's uh, absolutely correct. Um, You know, we're barely able to uh, police everyday issues Mm. and... uh, you would probably have reported on your programme, as many others, and I've done hundreds of interviews over the last ten years, about how we've lost 22,000 officers, uh, almost 4,000 in the Met. And when you actually count 4,000 in the Met, for example, that are lost, just look at how that is depleted, backing up their own colleagues and dealing with any wide-scale public disorders like we're beginning to see on our streets almost daily now.
5: Yes. I mean, we were looking now at the uh, at the video shot from last night of a guy basically smashing up a police car. I'm told there was quite a few police cars smashed up. I mean, I saw that this morning uh, when I woke up, as I do my usual sort of trawl of what's been going on, and I wasn't sure if it was genuine, you know? I had to sort of double-take it and go, this is surely not happening, you know, like two, three miles away from where I am right now, sitting high above London Bridge, because it's not very far from here. and uh, And yet... The police appear once again like they were during those marches earlier on uh, this month running away
2: yes and it's embarrassing I mean you know I feel from my colleagues nowadays I mean when I was in the job for 31 years I cannot recall a single time I ran away from an incident
4: right
2: uh, a I knew I'd be getting back up and B we had this sort of fearlessness amongst us that um, the criminal element are not allowed to run riot. They're not allowed to rule the streets. That's our job. And we rule the streets on behalf of society to, you know, as I, I've said in the last programme, we're, we're the difference between right and wrong and good and bad. Yeah. But uh, the, the commission I saw this morning and what she does all the time now, and I can sort of see her political stance, is she closes it all down. Like, for example, there were just a small number of police vehicles damaged. Well, for goodness sake, one bloody police vehicle is too much to have damage, because that is one response vehicle that will not be responding to an urgent assistance Mm. call. And what I'm really concerned about, Mike, is this, is that I'm wondering what public order incident that outbreaks on the streets of an area most probably in London Mm. that is going to ignite wide-scale public disorder throughout Britain. It takes one. And at this moment in time it's like a litmus paper. Mm. Which incident is going to light it?
5: Well, the problem is, I suppose, the police, uh, as they are now, would tell me if I could get them to come on this radio show, uh, well, we didn't want the situation to escalate. That seems to be their mantra now. So they basically just get out. And that's all very well for them. But what about the people who are law-abiding citizens living in Brixton who don't want to see their streets smashed up, who don't want to see cars being set on fire and windows being smashed, because they live there and they don't really wish to have the rule of the, the mob on the street?
2: Absolutely. I, I said just now that I feel for my colleagues now because, uh, you know, when I see them running away, I, I just feel embarrassed. Yeah. and the, It's the worst type of message to send out to the law-abiding members of the public, which are in their tens of millions. But the thing is, Mike, if they didn't run away from that situation, the bay in mobs, and that's what they are, and some are armed, and if I remember rightly, I saw a sword. Some
5: guy had a sword, yeah.
2: Arrested. At my at my police colleagues last night mm. is that a police officer is going to be murdered? Yeah, and
5: well, some of these guys will have guns as well.
2: Well, they're they're, they're probably not going to be bought out uh, at this moment in time. Mm. Um, that they were bought out after the Mark Duggan incident yeah. uh, up in places like uh, Birmingham. Yeah, but the biggest concern I have, Mike, is this, and I will say it again. I said it on your last program is that I believe that the mainstream media in Britain are stoking and inciting people to act disorderly on the streets of Britain. It's almost as though they would love it if there was wide-scale public disorder so they can increase their circulation. And one Sky News uh, sports reporter the other day
0: accused
2: the British Police Service of
4: murdering... I saw
2: that. Criminals. Now, I'm telling you now, and I will stand up to anyone and everyone, there has not been a single black person murdered by the police in Britain. There has never been a single conviction. But just look at the damage that these inflammatory and slanderous mm. statements are. And Sky News, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people, Mike, have cancelled their subscriptions. Mm. I'm doing the same. You cannot have the mainstream media causing or inciting mayhem. And every day on Sky News, I have to turn it off. Morning, afternoon, mm. evening. Well,
5: one it's of the about- things, one of the points, of course, that he made was that the fact that, the, that, that no police have been convicted is part of the problem. You know, his, his inference being that the, the justice system sort of protects them.
2: But that's not the case. Mm. Um, every single uh, person that dies in police custody, and it's never anything that we want, is thoroughly investigated, not by the police, but by independent investigations, yeah. often taking years. Officers are under stress. Now, this is not a numbers game where for every 10 black people that uh, are, are killed on the streets uh, or, or die in police custody that we will throw an officer under the bus. The reason why no police officer has ever been convicted of murder in Britain is because you have the best police service in the world, the most tolerant in the world, and at this moment in time, they're being blamed for all society's wrongs.
4: Mm. And don't
2: forget, the police are the public, the public are the police. They're attacking their own. I
5: mean, if we say in this country, as I've often heard in the past few weeks, the policing uh, of this nation is done by consent at the moment, Um, it is not being done by consent because at the moment it's not being done at all partly because there are people uh, who are making the lives of police officers individually very difficult. Because I don't know what happens tonight, for example. I mean, you know, it's going to be very hot. People are going to be out. The reason apparently for the disorder in the first place was a street party, uh, which people were having. There was a police helicopter apparently above it for about uh, several hours from about seven o'clock at night. It was, to all intents and purposes, an illegal gathering. Um, But you have to ask the question, who then sends the police into something like that? Um, if they're not going to be able to do anything? What's the point?
2: Well, you're caught between a rock and a hard place, the police, you know. Yeah. I mean, you've got men and women that, um, you know, just want to police their own areas. They, look, they go into their police stations every day and they see hundreds of crimes being reported. Yeah. Some were grade one, and that's uh, an immediate response, which they can't attend. Mm. The grade twos, which is like a burglary where the suspect's not on. The victim will never, ever see a police officer. Well, just look at the difference that a police officer turning up, even if no one's nicked, that cares, that takes a statement, mm. that looks for forensics, that updates you on an investigation, that tells you that, don't worry, we have got some DNA, and at any time that matches anybody else, believe you me, we will arrest them. Mm. Well, when the public don't see that, the public get disenfranchised from the police. They lose their confidence in the face,
4: yeah. at their faith.
2: And the unfortunate thing is at the moment, whilst the general public, um, support the police and respect them. I'm afraid the faith in them to turn up and do the jobs that they expect them to do is plummeting, and that is not what policing is all about.
5: No, because what I was going to say uh, was Norman, what happens tonight if there's another street party and the police are called by someone who's not happy? Um, what do they do?
2: Well, the police will turn up and they will be attacked. Uh, police vehicles uh, will be damaged and. Sadly, the public will see um, many people in uniforms running away when really they should stay there. But the thing is, you put yourself in a police officer's position. These are men and women with families. They want to go home at the end of the day. They don't want to fight certain sex of the community. They just want to do policing. Right. Now, one thing, I, I went to a family funeral yesterday over in Beckenham, and I was driving back through Croydon. I've got a nice little soft top, and I was looking around, and I just didn't feel at ease. And I thought to myself... I bet you if it cracks off, it will probably be in this area. Mm. I drove through four roads where I had reported murders. And also, you remember that uh, youth or that black youth that attacked a vehicle with a knife last year. Yeah. And I thought to myself, God bless the people that live in Croydon and the surrounding areas, because I'll be quite honest with you, that is the area that I can see it cracking off on. And mm. it only needs one spark to ignite public disorder on Britain. And then... We are in absolutely chaos. That is anarchy. Yeah. Don't forget, we've just come through the coronavirus. Yeah. We've just come through lockdown. And tens of thousands of businesses have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of people are out of work. Do you really think that we now want large, wide scale public disorder on our streets? Because I'm telling you, I hope I'm wrong, it's coming.
5: Yeah, I hope you're wrong as well, Norman, but I'm afraid that we are in this place partly because of the um, inactivity and the inability of the management of the police forces. I have absolute sympathy with every single man and woman who's out there in a uniform trying to keep order. But they're fighting a losing battle because they're not being given the tools uh, with which to do it properly. And it seems to me that what's lacking here is any kind of creative thinking. You know, I understand that they can't go in like they used to do in the old days with the old crash helmets and the batons and start beating people. But, you know, there must be another way, surely.
2: You'd like to think so. Uh, What I found out, and I've been in policing since the Brixton riots right up to after the Mark Duggan uh, situation, and it's this is that the criminal black element behind the Black Lives Movement, what they love is tension between the police they like the, 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 and, the, and the communities. They like that mistrust because what it means is that they can carry out their crimes with immunity and with impunity. And the sad reality is, is that police have to find their way around it. And the point that I didn't clear up earlier on, Mike, is that out of about 140 uh, people that have died in police custody, the last ten years, eight have been black. Few ethnic minorities. The majority are white. And as I say again, not one single police officer has ever been convicted of murdering a black uh, suspect on the streets of Britain. And when we keep on getting all these allegations, and none of them, none of them are challenged, the mainstream media. I mean, I'm one of the only white people in Britain, and white voices in Britain, has said, "Hold on, there's some answers to this. Black people go to prison." a lot longer than white people in some cases, because in some cases they're far more violent. People of the black origin are stopped and searched, far more than white, because when a robbery happens, sometimes we will stop 15 people because they could be a suspect or they could be a witness. The burglaries that are happening three streets away by five white people will never go down as a stop-and-search. They will go down as an arrest and conviction when we do the inquiries. That's when we do them, if we've got the officers. So, of course, all these robberies, and there's tens of thousands of them, and we do stop-and-searches, and and the place is what we've got to do. We've got to record the details. Of course, they're going to skyrocket. But what the mainstream media and the black, angry activists are using are these figures that are never challenged. Well, I can challenge every single one, and if I could do so rationally, my tens of millions of people in Britain would say, do you know what? There's actually many answers to these questions Mm. and allegations that are never, ever challenged.
5: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Norman, thanks very much indeed. Norman Brennan there, Director of the Law and Order Foundation, uh, giving us his um, situation, giving us his description of how policing is working in this country or how it's not working uh, and how it does work. And I think these are the things that we need to talk about, because what we can't have, no matter who is behind it, is a sort of lawlessness on the streets of this country. Don't forget, uh, Brixton is a very vibrant part of South London. Loads of people live in Brixton. Not everybody who lives in Brixton is of one particular ethnic minority. There's an awful lot of white people that live in Brixton. There's an awful lot uh, of Asian people that live in Brixton. There's all sorts of people living in all sorts of areas of London. And it's not going to be necessary to turn it into some kind of cultural war. And nobody wants violence on the streets of this country, surely. Surely. And the police are in a very bad place right now. They don't know what to do. And I don't think the the people that run the police service in London know what to do. For example, tonight, what are you going to do if there's another street party? Are you just going to ignore it? Are you just going to let it go ahead if you're the police? Or are you going to go back in and try and put it to uh, an end? I have literally no idea what the answer to that is.
0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
4: Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio.
5: Now, time to say a very, very good morning to Mr. David Wooding, who is no doubt uh, on tenterhooks, because it could well be that Liverpool uh, will win the Premier League uh, very shortly. And uh, we'll find out if he's able to contain his excitement. David, very good uh, morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, I'd have to say, right, that in the end, um, the Liverpool sort of local council people saying, well, I don't think you should bother having a street party. Liverpool win the league for the first time in several decades. I mean, it doesn't make much sense to me, given what we're seeing around the rest of the country. Why shouldn't they?
8: No, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the, the one sadness of all this is, uh, um, uh, after a 30 year wait for the title, uh, nobody will be able to have a party, <laughs> let alone the players But do you yeah. really
5: think sure. that will happen though? Do you think people won't have, st- I mean people are going to be out on the streets surely? Uh, I'm sure they
8: will uh, Do you know what, a lot of, lot of people uh, were saying we shouldn't let Liverpool play their games, the one, the one at Goodison Park last uh, last Sunday mm. because, uh, because the crowds would turn out and disobey and Liverpoolians are not to be trusted, absolutely not the case I mm. mean, uh, um, it went just like every other uh, game the fans behaved and um, made a message saying celebrate at home, you'll be with us in spirit and of course we were, there was as much noise as there is on the cop in my living
5: room last night when I was watching the game <laughs> <Yeah>. I mean <laughs> what do you make of it actually I know we're supposed to be talking politics here but what do you make of the, uh, the football without the crowds because I can't get used to it I'm afraid no,
8: I, I I've watched a bit of both. Um, when I watched the first game, um, uh, the first games um, last week, but not Liverpool, some of the other games, I flicked between the three stations. I watched it without the noise, uh, with the no- with the, with the canned crowd, mm. and uh, and also with the fans sitting talking nonsense in the corners. So I switched that one
2: off rather quickly.
8: <laughs> but um, I, I, last night I watched it all without the sound. Um, I think it was more real. Um, yes, there was no crowd there, but you were watching it as if you were at the ground whereas the, the can noise it, it was a bit fake you know um, it, it, didn't, it didn't really recreate what it was like mm. and I just thought it, but I, I found it quite fascinating to listen to the players shouting shouting each other and the, and the, the, the coaches, the touchline it gave you a new insight into the game however yeah, the atmosphere isn't there but um, I'm, I'm sure if you, uh, if you did a zoom with little pictures all the way across the, uh, the screen you'd see households around the, uh, the country of, of, of various fans shouting at the television and, and enjoying it in their own way. So, yeah, it's better than not having football, Mike. That's the most important Well, I suppose that
5: is better, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, you'd have, you'd have to say that. Uh, what about our, our friend, Mr. Jenrick, then? Um, I mean, this story's been rattling around for quite a while and I always wonder mm. whether um, once it gets to kind of day five or six and nothing much has changed, whether anything really will, will force him out of the job.
8: Yes, the, the difficulty though is 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 the drip 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 of the poison. I mean, these are the sorts of stories that um, uh, the popular papers don't don't cover because they're they're complicated, involve planning laws, and people that, that haven't really broken through into the public consciousness. You know, sort of more minor. Parliamentary figures, uh, and 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 today it is broken in, onto page two of the Sun. It has it's been a little bits in, but it's it's getting it's getting a big show in the paper today. So this story is is starting to to, to reach out beyond where it was originally, and and that's the problem for for, for Robert Jenrick. Um, I mean, it's one of those stories where a lot of people might not read the intricate detail of it all, of the planning applications all a bit dry, yes. but nevertheless there's a whiff of something wrong about this, and that's what most people get from it, yes. so it is damaging for the government from that yeah. point of view. I mean
5: I, t- I suppose that the, the, the text messages, although they're not particularly damning, the text messages where some of them, um, uh, from, from Richard Desmond to him, sort of asking him to make things happen, and him saying things like well please go through the usual channels I mean I don't know Richard Desmond, but I know lots of people who worked for him at uh, quite a high yeah. level, as I'm sure you do. Yes, uh, um, I do. Yes, and he's a very, uh, shall we say, um, insistent character. He's not some a sort of shrinking violet, and when he yeah. when he wants something, he won't bo- he won't leave you alone. Until he oh gets yes, it. Um,
8: Sir Richard is. Oh, he's not Sir Richard yet, is he? No, no, no. That's um, wishful thinking. You get yeah. ahead of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but 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 Richard Desmond, uh, he's given money um to the Labour Party. Yeah, he's given money to UKIP. Fact, yes, I remember. He gave that, a yeah. load of money to Nigel Farage. He gave a million
5: party. quid to UKIP. I think, didn't
8: he? Yep. Yeah. And then he backed them. He had his paper when he owned the Daily Express to back them yeah. during the election campaign. Um, uh, and then and then he back- now why did he do that? Because there was no chance that the, that UKIP were going to win. A, a general election. Mm. Then he back
5: and then he backs the Conservative Party. So he gave them general... twelve thousand quid, which to him I have to say is kind of pocket change.
8: Yes. So why is he giving money to the Conservative Party? It's not out of love or loyalty to that party. So that's another thing that you start to to wonder about. Mm. And and if you look at the whole um, uh, the, the the actual timeline of events on this. You know, uh, Tower Hamlets Council, the local authority uh, uh, rejected this proposal in 2016 because they want affordable housing. Mm. These were luxury flats, a 1 billion development of 1,500 luxury homes, one of which uh, Richard Desmond wanted to live in himself in his old print works. He wants to move yes. his old print works from his old newspaper, and then they failed to. Re- he put in a revised plan, and they failed to re- uh, to, to approve that. Uh, and then when the developer appe- uh, appealed, um, Mr. Jenrick's advisers recommended that he say no. Mm. But then after this after this um, uh, dinner when he was sitting beside him and was shown a video of the proposed development by Mr. Desmond, and then they exchanged text messages, which, friendly text messages, which, again, there's nothing compellingly... um, uh, You know, nothing which makes you feel there's anything untoward about that, but nevertheless, the whole scenario of him then uh, approving this this development, and just a couple of days before... Uh, the the new tax regime came in, which would have cost Mr. Desmond an extra 45 million quid. And then he gives 12 grand to the Tory party a few days later. It all adds up to a bit of a a bit of a
5: smelly. Yes, um, it doesn't. It doesn't look great, I think, is the problem. But I mean, I wonder, given the way that this government has operated up to now, would it be more kind of prudent, shall we say, if there was a little bit of a reshuffle done in the next couple of weeks and he suddenly finds Mm. himself perhaps out on a limb rather than, you know, telling him he has to go? Well, Boris Johnson has come out with
8: that line he used when his most senior aide, Dominic Cummings, ran into a bit of trouble over his trip to Barnard Castle during mm. the, uh, the the early days of the lockdown. He he said, um, "The matter is now closed," yes. and uh, and I think Boris Johnson is. It takes a lot to make Boris Johnson buckle over uh, uh, when he's been given support for people. Yeah, you know, we've seen it before. Where we've seen it in football a lot. To go back to football, mm. where they say you've got the boards full. Um, That's never a good support. thing. <laughs> never a good thing. <laughs> but Boris Johnson, it tends to be. It tend, He tends to stick by what he says. He's very loyal to his yes. team. So we'll see where this one goes, but. Um, uh, what else is there to come out? Maybe they're just feeling they've weathered this storm. It's, it all looks bad for a couple of days and it'll all wash away. But clearly, um, Robert Jenrick's been through the mill a little bit the last few days. Well, he
5: has. And what has not has surprised me, really, is that Keir Starmer has not particularly gone for him, has he? I mean, he was on uh, Prime Minister's questions the other day, but I don't, I don't think mm. he raised it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's not a lot of noise coming out of Labour. over. think they'd be going for this in a big way. Yeah, I think
8: Steve Reed did quite well in the Commons yesterday, the what uh, the, the front bench um, housing spokesman yeah. for the Labour Party. He definitely smelt blood and he was using all the old phrases about, you know, mates, rates for friends of the Tories, yeah, and yeah. cash for honours, cash for favours, <laughs> one rule for us and one rule for them, all that sort of stuff. Just, He's obviously just forgotten just the Blair
5: the years, hasn't yes, he? Yes, yes absolutely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was ever thus. Yes, indeed, quite right. What about the reshuffle? Is is, is the sort of threatened reshuffle on the cards any time soon? Well, Dominic Cummings has denied that the Cabinet
8: reshuffle is being planned. And uh, he's also... The, 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 the biggest scalp on that reshuffle that, that's been touted, apart from Mr Jenrick, is Gavin Williamson, yeah. the Education Secretary.
5: Yeah, nobody likes him, does he? Who? Well, you no, know, <laughs> Williamson. He seems to be an unpopular figure inside the Cabinet.
8: Uh, yes. Um, well, I think it was all about the the way he rose uh, through the ranks. Mm. He was a, he was a rather successful cheap whip, um, kept the, the troops in line, and and got the voting figures through for Theresa May. And then, of course, he twisted her arm to get into mm. the cabinet as Defence Secretary. And um, people feel. Perhaps the, um, the the systems, system and, and practices are used as a whip to to, to to keep people in line and to get those votes over over uh, through in the Commons doesn't really work when it comes to running a department and you have to right. cut different types of deal and manage big 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 uh, public spending commitments. Uh, the, does the, it does uh, it like also go back as,
5: as, as I sometimes suspect it does to the leak you know, when Theresa May was Prime Minister about the whole Huawei thing, which everyone kind of blamed him for, and he. He'd had to kind of walk away for a while that was another one
8: yes that was that was something that did a lot of harm of course he denied all that yeah he did but, but that cost him his uh, his job and, and if he goes again it will be a bit shades of peter Mandelson here where when you go down for the second time there's not much coming back from <laughs> no, that
5: no quite and the other dominic cummings kind of area of interest of course is the civil service he's making more noises about that again a bit more reform possibly coming
8: Yes. The phrase he used was, a hard rain is coming. This is a, um, a phrase used about nuclear
5: winters. And yes. It's been no secret. Well, I assume now uh, he's not quoting yes. the Bob Dylan song.
8: <laughs>
4: yes.
5: Well, you never um, know.
8: No, it could be. It could be. Um, he's, he's, um, he's talking about, um, uh, been talking for some time about reforming the civil service. He, he doesn't like civil service. In fact, Communist does he like, like anyone? MPs. He doesn't like MPs. No. He um, doesn't
5: like journalists. He, Who does he like? He,
8: the, the, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. Um, he, he can be an engaging character. Mm. But he, 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 he really, if he decides somebody's um, not very good, then it takes a lot of convincing to change his mind. And I, I think he believes that the civil service is too remainery, it's too left-wing, it doesn't do as it's told, it's not elected by the people, and we need to shake it up a little bit. Mm. Now, we've already seen the first, um, the first move in his um, uh, his big Plan when the um, the Department for International Development uh, w- was merged with the Foreign Office, or, yes. or it will be merged with the Foreign Office. The announcement was made last week, yeah. um, and and now there are a few. We also lost the Foreign Office. Um, uh, the secretary, the permanent secretary in the Foreign Office. Yeah. So people he doesn't like, he's, he's settling scores with, or people who are not playing the game or doing as they're told or resisting change. Now, he's, he's seen this twice. Once when he was in the Department for Education and Special advisor to Michael Gove, uh, were what he described as the blob, the education establishment, who were told what the government wants wants schools and the education people to do with, with, with the kids' lives and futures and teaching practices, and they don't do it. The education establishment all gangs up and, and resists it all. And he believes the same thing goes on inside the civil service. There's this strong, powerful group of people who basically defy what the government mm. does uh the government has power but it can't do what it wants and that is why he wants to uh, change the civil service he believes
5: no of course and so as far as the sort of week is concerned i mean obviously you're getting together uh and getting ready for your uh, for your publication on sunday um it's not been a bad week for the government has it
8: no, um, it, it, there's always going to be. It, it, it's a bit like um, it's a bit like a, a, a job in journalism. Really, you never know. you are having a bad week or a good week. Cause you, <laughs> you, you get some good stories, but you miss some good stories right. as well. Yeah. And I think the same for government. There's there's always always something bad going along. But but, but we've got they've got through the lifting of the lockdown. And yeah. again, this is like Brexit lockdown mm. um, we, we had people saying let's let's um let's uh, this is going on too long we we, we can't stand this anymore we want to go to the pub we want to go on holiday so boris johnson then does it and then people shouting we're, we're doing this too quickly yeah. we're all gonna die yeah so uh, there's a big division like on brexit where the vocal, the vocal people are the ones who are losing. So when we were locked down, the vocal people were the, those who wanted to break out. Mm. And now we're breaking out the vocal people who, who, are, who are, want to stay in their houses longer. So uh, in the same way, when we, when we got Brexit through, uh, the, the people who were making the most noise then were the, um, were the people who wanted to stay in. Yes. Um, and, and the same with the schools. Oh, it's not safe to go back to schools. And then when they say, OK, we'll go back, we won't go back to schools, they say, what about our kids, our kids' future? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so there's a lot of that going on at the yeah. moment. But no, not a bad not a bad week for the government. Next week's gonna be a crucial week because Boris Johnson's making a very, very important speech in which he's gonna tell us how he will move Britain forward out of lockdown. Mm. There's a lo- going to be a lot of meat in that, Mike, because he's not only going to talk about coronavirus he's going to move on to, we're facing a big uh, recession yeah. jobs, unemployment, what is he going to do to try and rebuild Britain and move us forward and, and try and create at least some prosperity to, to get us through what are certainly um, never mind um, a big rain coming uh, it's, it's going to be a bit of a stormy seas ahead for, for yeah. all of us on, on the economic front.
5: Yes, I think so. David, thanks very much Indeed, David Wooding there, son on Sunday's political editor, talking about how big next week is going to be because that will be when Boris Johnson will have to be uh, quite detailed about the plan uh, of action in terms of not just coming out of lockdown and telling people to go to the beach and go to the pub, but also how the economy uh, is going to be kind of stewarded uh, by Rishi Sunak and the Chancellor of the Treasury uh, and the rest of them as well.
3: Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
5: Mr. Charles Ray, a very good afternoon to you and welcome. Uh, I'm happy to say I'm keeping you out of the sunshine because you don't want to be out in that today. No,
3: you're absolutely, I've I've come into the coolness of the
5: living room. Yes, very wise, very wise indeed. Now, I mean, we we were told when when Harry and Meghan sort of left that they were going to make an awful lot of money, but it hasn't really worked out like that for them so far. This is really the first piece of sort of good news they've had since they moved to California, isn't
3: it? It is uh, the very first piece of, of good news. I mean, clearly they're going to have to sing for their supper, because the money that they were getting has, has been cut, cut right back. And as you quite rightly said, they've signed up with this, this top agency, uh, and it's supposed to be a million pounds um, a, a speech yeah. on, on topics that include right on subjects like racial injustice, gender equality, mental health, and the environment. Now, Michael, if I was going to be part of paying them a million pounds, believe you me, I'd want to be hearing stories about what went on inside the palace walls. <laughs> <bottles. laughs>
5: well, I mean, I suppose there's precedent for this, isn't there? Because all the old uh, sort of presidents and all the old prime ministers sure. and various other world leaders, I mean, even Theresa May, uh, I believe, gets something like 100 grand per time if she goes and speaks at an after-dinner function. So I suppose if, you ha- if you're going to pay that kind of money for Theresa May, uh, you'd pay 10 times that for, uh, for Harry and Meghan.
3: Well, yes. I mean, Harry and Meghan, according to according to the list that the Sun have kindly uh, uh, re- reproduced, uh, they're going to be right up there with, um, you know, Donald Trump, yes. who before his presidency was getting apparently 1.2 million. Uh, he was one of the top speech earners. And then, of course, you've got Bill Clinton, yes. um, who doesn't men- mention Monica Lew- Lewinsky at all, um, uh, getting £600,000. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, they're top earners. They've got the, you've got the royal status, and people will flock to hear what they've got to say. And the subjects that they're going to be talking on are the current subjects of the day. I I was being a bit flippant about them, But, of course, they're very, very important subjects, and whatever they say about them is is important they have got huge voices uh, on social media and you know quite rightly the people will want to
5: pay to hear them. Yeah, I mean, we make fun of them, of course, because sure. that's what we do. But, I mean, a lot of people do like them, and a lot of people, even though despite the fact that many of them have gone off Harry even more now ever since he decided that uh, he would uh, call for a boycott of Swing Low Sweet Chariot, um, basically, there's a lot of, there's probably a bigger market in America, in a way, for him, because he's still a member of the royal family. And, I mean, you know, I went to, uh, in Glasgow, funnily enough, a few years back, a Bill Clinton lunch, which was £500 a head. Not mm. per table, five hundred pounds a head. So if you well, if you've got the ability to to pull that kind of money in, if you're an organisation, then you're going to definitely pay them a, a million quid a time because you'll still make a profit.
3: Well, when I when I used to go across to America with the Royals, I, I mean I went to functions which were ten thousand dollars a plate right. to be in the same room as Princess Diana. Right. You know the 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 Royals are a big big attraction, and you know. Diana was doing it for this for their charity, and um, and so the charities that she supported earned an awful lot of money. Uh, And of course, now Harry and Meghan have got to, you know, get in the road and earn money for themselves.
5: Yes, exactly right. And uh, aside from all of that, um, how is the how has their life kind of been? Because I suppose America's slightly different to 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 us in the way that they've dealt with the pandemic and slightly different in the way that they've handled it. But my understanding about California is that it's more or less back to normal there now, isn't it?
3: So I gather, yes, uh, so I gather. I I mean, there is a nice picture of the couple actually in the paper this morning. Uh, They went to a charity called Homies, which is for... Uh, people who uh, are ex-gang members and who have been in prison, and they were helping, uh, you know, baking uh, products so that they could be sold. Uh, well, not sold, actually delivered to vulnerable people. And of course, they're wearing their British hair nets and uh, and face masks, which is always good for a picture. So, uh, as well as earning money, they're they're still doing the the you know the charity work that uh, you know we expect royals to do. In any case. Mm. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, all credit to them, um, but it's, it's not stopped It's not stopped. Her Majesty Meghan Markle issuing another <laughs> High Court writ, of course. Oh, there. is that right? What's, what well, what yeah, is it Archie this time? She's issued a High Court writ in the name of Archie. Now, Archie, for, for, the, for those of you who may remember, is actually only one. Right. So he's, he's issued his first but case. He's already got an
5: army of lawyers.
3: He's already got an army of lawyers. He's issued his first case, and his mum is... Is, is taking it on his behalf because against the Splash News Agency, which I'm sure you know very do. Well, very well, Mike, um, because they dared take a picture of Archie and Megan in a public park in Canada. Right. If you remember, that was the picture of them walking down oh, the yes. pathway with the coppers, you know, just behind them, uh, and 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 you couldn't see Archie. Archie was, you know, like covered up. He with was a, in a
5: sort of papoose, wasn't
3: he? It wasn't. Yeah, correct. So. It'd be interesting. This is another one. I mean, I'm not surprised that they're going to start earning a million pounds. They're going to need that amount of money for all the court <laughs> for all the
5: lawyers. I was un- I was under the impression at the time that that picture was taken that everyone was sort of saying it was stunted up that she had basically arranged for the photographer to come along because of the way it was posed and because Whoa. it looked so kind of set up.
3: Yeah, there was a there was an allegation of of, of that, but clearly. Clearly, not if she's now taking the, the Splash agency to, to court. I, and I have to say that Splash are saying that they are going to fight it. Mm. So she's, she's going into court with these matters as she is against the Mail on Sunday. Yeah, how's that all
5: going? Because we had the sort of preliminaries on that and then it's, oh, because it was adjourned, wasn't it? It has
3: is, it is been adjourned and I'm told that that's not, we're not even going to hear that case until probably the end of the year, but more likely next year. Right, okay. So it's going to be a long running battle.
5: Yeah, so I mean that's not going anywhere uh, soon either, because I presume the mail um, will continue to report on them, um, which will be um, still, I suppose, as popular as ever.
3: Yes, and it's interesting. It, it, it is, uh, and it's interesting that the Sun themselves, you know, when they 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 try to contact uh, Harry and Meghan and obviously approached the agency mm. the Harry Walker agency and neither of them have responded now that's in keeping with their decision not to speak to the nasty tabloid yes. uh, and yeah, yeah, it's up to them of course I mean we give them the opportunity to speak and that's a, it's a matter for them or their spokesman to speak on their behalf but they're not even allowing their spokesman to pick up the phone to the tabloids.
5: Mm. Yeah and what about their relations because there's also been uh, some, some things written in various other magazines I think it was tatler wasn't it where um, basically there was some rather nasty stuff written about about Harry and uh, not about Harry about Kate and Will and William and yeah. about the sort of falling out. And then it was revealed, was it not, that one of the people who was working at Tatler was quite good friends with Jessica Mulroney uh, over in America and Canada, who used to be, of course, Meghan's friend, but isn't anymore. That it's yeah. <laughs> so, so hard to keep up.
3: It is. It is. It is like one of these soap operas. That <laughs> you, you, the plot lines get get biz- more bizarre as they go along. yeah we, we've got a situation where this time william and kate have asked for tatler to remove that offending article which was written by your former colleague anna Pasten- that's right at the express um and uh they want that removed from online But has it been uh, removed tatler probably did, not right you no know, get stuff we ain't going to do that uh and so we're going to wait and see if they now go to IPSO because Tatler is now covered by the Press Complaints uh, oh, yes. Organisation.
4: Mm. Okay. So
3: we'll have to wait and see what happens with there. But so the Royals, there is going to be a, an awful lot of um, legal action and complaint action going on in, in the very near future. No
5: right. And as the lockdown sort of eases, and I think I asked you this last time you were on, will we will we see the Queen out and about? somewhere, where do you think?
3: I can't say, I can't think we're going to be seeing the Queen at the moment because while they're still, I mean, I know everybody's flocking to, you know, Bournemouth Beach and every other beach and everything else, but, you, you know, we still have a big problem. I mean, Boris Johnson made it quite clear yesterday that it's not going away, and the experts are actually saying that we're unlikely to be clear, if at all of this at the earliest by next year. So I can't see that we're going to be seeing the Queen very much in the foreseeable future. I'm hoping we'll probably, we will see it at some stage towards the end of the year. And I think, as I've told you before, you know, the Queen's diary takes about two years to sort out. Right. So it's two years done, it's done two years in advance. So there's been an awful lot of cancellations, and I'm sure once everybody agrees that the Queen can come back out again, well, she's only too pleased to carry on with the the royal duties that we know and love her for. No,
5: quite. And I thought that was a lovely photograph, wasn't it, of Prince Charles and William that they put out for Father's Day. And, I mean, that's the kind of thing that it seems simple enough but just makes everybody feel rather good about life.
3: And also, like you, Mike, I've got a few, you know, good friends who are photographers who were complaining to me, oh, well, it's easy, you know, because I wish we could get a chance to take that picture. To be quite honest, I'm not sure that any professional photographer would have been able to capture that sort of intimacy of mm. that picture which was captured by uh, C- Catherine. Yes. you know that was a family snap and right. those are the best ones that you, you you get you know that that was those two guys Charles and William standing together and all of a sudden Charles puts his uh, his head on on William's almost shoulder mm. William's way taller than he is now and it was just an, an absolutely fabulous snap and of course you've got the other side of it as well. It's a pity, really, that um, you know Harry wasn't there for, for it as well. He, I mean, he must have seen it as well and maybe thinking, oh, God. Well, I'm, those are
5: the bits that he must be missing, surely.
3: Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure he is missing those sort of intimate uh, royal encounters that he has. And it just goes to show that how warm and friendly Charles is with William. And I'm not suggesting that he's not friendly with Harry uh, at, at all. It's just that the opportunity, there's about 6,000 miles difference between yeah. them.
4: Right.
5: And I guess the other uh, uh, problem, I suppose, for the Queen, Prince Andrew still rattling about, not really uh, sure what he's going to do in the coming months and uh, uh, and years, because he's obviously not going to be getting involved in well, the, the, uh, royal the, activities. But he's obviously yeah. not going to go to America either. I watched the, um, I don't know if you've seen it, the, uh, the Epstein documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable, isn't it?
3: It is unbelievable. and you there's um, news that today, I think I saw that actually a couple of days ago as well, where the top prosecutor who uh, was was after Andrew has actually been sacked.
5: He's been sacked by Trump, yeah,
3: by by Trump. it's alleged he's been sacked by Trump mm. or one of his aides. Well, it's apparently now, he was
5: also doing quite a lot of investigations into Trump.
3: yes, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's one of the, that was the main <laughs> reason why he was getting why, why, why he got, they got rid of him. But, of course, again, that smacks of another, you know, scene-stealing soap opera-style thing that the man who is leading the investigation has now been axed. Yeah. And it gives you the impression that there's there's been some sort of collusion mm. behind the scenes with, 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 with Trump, which w- 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 would be hard to believe. Well,
5: certainly we've seen already Epstein's uh, influence when he was alive on the, on the prosecutions that were going on in Florida how he just well, managed to exactly. get them kind of swept under the carpet altogether.
3: That programme staggered me. I know. When, when, you, when you think that when Epstein was jailed um, he and he went, he went to so-called prison, he was allowed out yeah. six days a week for 12 hours a day. I know. And he continued in his office and, and continued, allegedly, grooming yeah. and having sexual relations with underage girls. Well, exactly
5: right. And, I mean, what it, what it said to me as well, though, Charles, was, um, you know, if you're Prince Andrew, how is it possible that you hang about with this guy and you yeah. don't know what he's up to?
3: Oh, exactly. I, I mean, I mean, you, you know, I've said this to you before, I and mean, I think Andrew is particularly arrogant and, it, and many times, stupid. But there comes to a there comes to a point where your stupidity, you've got to sort of kick in and say, well, hang on a second. Yeah. There's things going on here that just ain't quite right, and I'm a member of the royal family, and I should not be involved with this guy. And you, and we've said this before. You don't fly across to the states and spend four days at the guy's house just to tell him he's not, you're not going
5: to see him no I know I know beggars belief well anyway we shall see the, the chapters continue Charles Charles Ray former Royal Editor of the Sun there's always something to talk about with the Royal Family uh, this particular day uh, front page news that uh, Harry and Meghan are going to make a million quid a time uh, but looking at the list of other people who make uh, similar amounts of money for their after dinner speaking Tony Blair 250,000 uh, we've got Rudy Giuliani 217,000 Al Gore 120,000 Lance Armstrong uh The former cyclist, 80,000. Richard Branson supposedly gets 80,000 quid per time as well. You know, there's definitely some money to be made here. I think we should start getting ourselves over to Barack Obama's agent right now uh, and see if we can uh, rustle up some money for the Christmas uh, party. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, um, much as I say that uh, it's an extremely hot day out there and you have been warned not to go out in the midday sun, uh, which is currently going on because it's about 34 degrees in London uh, and the UV factor apparently is really, really quite dangerous. So stay indoors um, and have a drink, possibly. Uh, We're going to talk now to Alwyn Gwilt, uh, who is, of course, a Balvenie brand ambassador, also known as Miss Whiskey. Alwyn, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Hello, Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. Miss Whiskey is quite a, a super K to live up to.
1: <laughs> it is indeed. I set the bar high when I, uh, when I created <laughs> that uh, name for myself a number of years ago.
5: <laughs> now, I detect that you don't have a Scottish accent. So so tell us about your interest in, in Scotch Whiskey and how, how you got there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You are correct. I am Canadian, so I grew up in Canada. Um, but my dad's English, so uh, after university I ended up moving back to UK, fell in love with Totally with this country. I've been here since 2007, right. um, and uh, it was it was when I kind of moved back here that I discovered Scotch whiskey. Was absolutely blown away by the incredible stories and history and everything that goes along to it and started visiting distilleries and and the rest is uh is history as they say yes
5: and an awful lot of what's interesting about scotch is that it comes from different regions of the country and therefore it has a slightly different sort of tinge and flavor wherever you go um you're uh with us today because of the belveni uh brand where where is the belveni sort of situated tell us where that is
1: yeah, so the Balvenie is based up in Speyside in Scotland. So as you rightfully point out, there's lots of different regions in Scotland where whiskey is made. Um, and the Balvenie has been based just outside of a little town called Dust town. Okay. Um, and it's about, I guess, an hour inland from Aberdeen, if you wanted to kind of place it in your head in the map. So Speyside mm. is really the most populous region nowadays for making whiskey. So okay. there's lots of other distilleries up there. Um, our big brother, Glenfiddich, is next door as well, so we've um you know we've, we've been there since uh, the family established us back in 1892. So it's a very long
5: time. Now I've got a terrible confession to make. My parents are both actually from from Scotland. I was born in London, but I also w- lived and worked up in Scotland for the best part of about uh, seven years or so. And uh, unfortunately, I never ever went to a distillery while I was there, which <laughs> I now regret massively. I used to live in in Glasgow, and it's so easy to get around in Scotland because there's hardly any traffic. You know, that I'd quite often find myself up in the Highlands or up on the West Coast, up near sky that way, you know. And I never, ever thought of, of finding time to go to a distillery, which we really can do now, can't we?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are so many distilleries that are opening uh, their doors up to the public or have done for a number of years. Um, so we're part of William Branson's songs on the Balvenie and on our big brother, as I call them, uh, is Blanphitic Distillery, which I'm sure loads of listeners out there will know yes. as well. Um, and they were the first distillery to open their doors um, 50 years ago in Scotland to, to welcome visitors. So it, it's had a long history. And I think one of the best ways to really connect with people to really cement that story and the magic, you know, behind the scenes at a whiskey distillery is to, is to go there, is to smell it, is to feel it. Um, and the Balvenie is really special because we still have so many things on site at the distillery, traditional practices, which have really disappeared from a lot of the Scotch whiskey industry. So when you come and see it in the flesh, and you see those floor maltings, and you see the guys making the barrels and the cooperage. It's just, it's, it's hard to not fall in love with it. Yes, there's
5: quite a lot of interesting stories around the way that it's made and the, and the casks and the barrels and all of that, isn't there?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's an integral part of what we do. And, you know, there's there's so many elements that when it comes to whiskey making where, you know, one small change can can make a difference. But you don't always know what that difference is until so maybe 10 or 12 years down the line. So it's a long-term business when it comes to whiskey. Um, but all of those key um, craftsmanship elements that we put in place right from the get go, mm. um, you know, make a massive difference at the end for the product, for the consumer.
5: Okay. Now, tell us what you've got for us today, Arwin. I've got three very nice looking bottles in front of me. One says Double Wood, one says Caribbean Cask, uh, case rather, and then there's a lovely smaller bottle, uh, which is a Glenn 15 years old.
1: Yes, absolutely. So, the Double Wood 12 and the Caribbean Cask 14 are, are two of the Kind of staple whiskies in the Belveni range. Um, like I said, we, we were established in 1892 and started making whiskey uh, from the stills in 1893, so a long history. Um, but these two whiskies have been released in the last few decades. Um, so a lot of people out there will probably know the Doublewood 12 year old. If you've come across Belveni before, uh, Doublewood 12 is one of the most classic Scotch whiskies that is available on the marketplace. It's been around for the last 27 years. Um, and it's just really comforting. It's it's matured in American oak and then finished for nine months in a European oak sherry cask, which gives it this beautiful richness, uh, fruitiness. It's uh, just, it, it's so easy going. A lot of people say that the doublewood 12 year old is one of the first whiskies that got them into drinking whiskey. So it is a pivotal whiskey when it comes to scotch whiskey. Um, and the Caribbean cask on the other hand is our bit of, uh, you know, it's a bit of a, a the fun cousin, I like to call it. So, yes. you know, obviously made there's the same distillery on the same stills, also matured in beautiful American oat casks. But Caribbean casks, you can probably guess, it's uh, it's finished in rum casks. And so the flavor profile that you get from those rum casks at the end of its life of maturation uh, just gives it a zippiness. It's, it's fresher. It's got a beautiful toffee, butterscotch characteristic from the rum. Uh, so the two kind of are, are wonderful whiskies to have side by side in a collection because they just showcase how you can utilize different types of casks to end up with a really different um, aroma profile on that on that whiskey, yes. Caribbean cast definitely your fun summer whiskey. This is my this is my whiskey for a hot summer day. Yes. I know if I, if I, if yes, because it's not
5: something whiskey. you would necessarily associate with with drinking in in a hot uh, atmosphere. But then of course you can also make cocktails with it as well, can't you? If you wish. But I'm, I, while you were talking there, I just was opening the double wood, um, and I'm just giving it a little nose at the moment. It smells okay. really nice, and uh, I'm going to take a little taste of it just to see how it is.
1: Absolutely, go go ahead, have a, have a sip. Um, This whiskey, mm, you know, it's, um, very nice. it's got a lovely sweetness, a, lo- a lovely honey character. It really
5: does, have. yeah, it's very sweet, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great one for people who are uh, just coming into whiskey as well. I think Scotch whiskey can sometimes seem a bit scary to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, it's and really, no, it's, it's just, just
5: the Scots that are a bit scary, actually.
1: <laughs> oh, I love the Scots.
5: I can say that because I am indeed Scottish, so don't worry. <laughs> now i'm just pouring um, a little of the um uh, the caribbean cask out
1: mm-hmm.
5: uh, i heard you say it's got a kind of a rum tinge to it
1: absolutely so six months finished in a rum cask so for the age we mature it for 14 years so quite a long time yeah in american oat casks and then we transfer it into rum casks for six months mm. so just a little you bit you can of taste
5: there. it as well you're right
1: yeah, it very much comes down the nose. So, if you're already a rum lover, if you know you enjoy dark spirits, but maybe you haven't uh, kind of played around in the in the whiskey space at all, right. then Caribbean Cask is an excellent bridge. Right. Uh, and as far as the different
5: years go, you know, the Doublewood twelve years, the Caribbean Cast fourteen, and then the Glenfiddich fifteen years. Yeah. Um, what's the difference, effectively, of, of, of the different number of years?
1: So that is just the minimum amount of time it has been uh, matured. Okay. So. That that age statement tells the consumer that this has had a minimum of 12, 14, or 15 years in oak tax. It's right. one of the regulations when it comes to Scotch whiskey. So that's the minimum. We can age it for longer, but as soon as we put even a teaspoonful of whiskey that is 14 years, um, into a batch and that's the minimum it, it, it is um, yes. anything else to put in there is, is just extra
5: and the reason I'm asking is because the 15 year old Glenfiddich means that it's a, perhaps bottled back in 2005 um, which coincides rather nicely with me getting sacked from the Scottish Daily Mirror where I was the uh, editor yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so it would have, it would have uh, yeah, it would, the, the whiskey in there would have gone into a task back in, in 2005, maybe 2004, because obviously, you know, by the time we go through the bottling process and everything. Glenfiddich 15, so um, like I said, Glenfiddich is our, our big brother. The William Grant and Son's family established Glenfiddich first and then built Belvenny five years later. So we're right next door to each other. Yes. Glenfiddich um, is an absolutely gorgeous historical distillery. And the 15 is my personal favorite from the Glenfiddich range. I love this whiskey. I've been drinking it for years. And it's a very unique style of maturation in the whiskey industry um, because we use what's called, it's called the Glymphitic uh, Solera because we use a more Spanish uh, sherry type.
5: Uh, okay. It's a beautiful it. little bottle as well. It's a, it's a small 20-centiliter bottle. And, you know, sometimes if you have a big bottle of whiskey, it's a bit intimidating. This is, <laughs> this is great for people who maybe want to try it because it's not a massive amount of alcohol, you know, and you can just have it there in your little cocktail cabinet. I'm just going to try some of the 15. Yeah
1: fantastic so yeah. you're going to get a beautiful combination here of the mm. American oh that's lovely American i think that's of... my favorite yeah so it's nice it's nice to have that combination and, and i think one of the great things about whiskey tastings is having whiskey side by side because depending on what time of day it is where you are who you're with you know your favorites might change uh dependent on the situation right yes. so you might come back and go actually today i'm more in a mood for this style and the wonderful thing about scotch whiskey is you know it is one category but it has a plethora of options within it so i think the consumer is really spoiled for choice and value when it comes to scotch whiskey
4: yes
5: well listen it's been a lovely uh, lesson uh, indeed <laughs> in, in whiskey and i thought i knew a fair amount about it before i spoke to you alwyn but uh, but brilliant thank you very much indeed for uh, uh for, for doing all this
3: for us talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio